And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Amen. If, if I were to ask you to give uh, me some ways the, in which the Bible describes God, kind of rapid fire, the, the first things, the first ideas, the first uh, truths about God that come to your mind, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there would be one description that would be left off of several of your lists. Rightly, many of you would say that the Bible describes God as, as holy, that he is righteous, uh, that he is a loving God, that, that he is a, a sovereign God. Many of you might see and, and, and say that the, the Bible describes God as, as judge, these are indeed ways in which the Bible does describe God. He is loving. He is holy. He is just. He, he is judge. But I wonder how many of your lists would include the description of God as Father. Father. The Bible refers to God as Father. When the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, he tells them that they are to pray, start their prayers, begin their prayers by saying, Our Father. Paul in Galatians 4 and 6 says, says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, doing what? Enabling us, giving us the ability to cry Abba, Father. Or what does Jesus say in Luke 11 and 13 after teaching the disciples to pray and, and speaking of uh, earthly fathers and, and their desire to give their children good gifts, but they're sinful, but they, they even know to give their children what they ask. He says, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
God is our Father. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ this morning, you have the privilege of calling the almighty God of the universe who created all things your Father. Knowing, knowing this truth is important as we dive this Sunday into the Ten Commandments, or as we are calling them the words of God. It's important because often these words that we will go through or that we will be discussing over these next couple of weeks, as Pastor Tony mentioned last week, when we rip them out of the context that we find them in, these, these rules or these commandments are often seen only as a set of rules. They are viewed as a list of do's and don'ts that come from a God who desires to reign on parades or to take all the fun away. Now, I can understand how unbelievers can come to this conclusion about the commandments. I can see how they, they, they would see them as a, a, a set of rules, especially ripping them out of context. But what is disheartening is that these ideas, unfortunately, have infiltrated the thoughts and the minds of Christians. Too often, too often, it is Christians who, who see the commandments as God keeping something from them, as opposed to him protecting and loving them. You want to you want to know the reason why some Christians feel this way about the Ten Commandments? Here's why. It's because I believe that they see God only as judge and forget that he is also Father. God is both and and not either or. And so, and so they are right. Those who see God as judge are, are right. He is judge. The, the Ten Commandments set a, a standard. They, they reveal the character and the holiness of God. And against this standard, God judges his people. And those who break it are considered lawbreakers and deserving of the unmitigated punishment that is doled out by God for breaking his law and his commands. Brothers and sisters, you and I must never ever forget that God is judge. In fact, in fact, if you forget that God is judge, if you don't see him as the Bible describes him in that way, you won't understand your need for being saved. The fact that God is judge means that all humanity, you know what, has a legal problem. We stand guilty before our creator. We have offended him and trampled upon his law. But not only that, if you haven't figured it out by now, we can't meet this holy standard that has been set by God. Even if we try with our best efforts, we still fall short. 
All humanity, brothers and sisters, have a legal problem. But this is why, that is why the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary. Because if you are in Christ this morning, it means that Jesus took care of your legal problem. We caught a case, but Jesus stood in our place. He, his fulfilling of the law, as he says in, in Matthew 5, satisfied the standard. The only one who had the ability to, to meet the, the perfect and righteous commands of God who could meet the standard did. And that perfect obedience that, God display, that Jesus displayed, obeying the law and the commands of God perfectly, that obedience, you know what it did? It became our obedience. The punishment that was due us because we could not meet the standard you know what happened? Jesus bore on the cross for us. And when he rose from the grave, God, the righteous judge, looked at us and pointed at us and proclaimed, not guilty, case closed. That's what Jesus did on your and I's behalf. Brothers and sisters, we must see God as judge if we are going to understand our salvation rightly. But here's the problem. Here's the, here's the issue. Too often, too often Christians stop there. The description of God as judge is the only description they see. And so they, they come to the Ten Commandments and they read them in light of God only being judge. And forget that he is also Father. You and I, you and I must realize that we not only had a legal problem, you and I had a relational problem. Sin had separated us from God, and, and we were at enmity with him. We were a people far off, no family, or orphans as it, as it were. But Jesus, through the cross, through his resurrection, not just took care of our legal problem, the legal issue that we had, he took care of our relational problem. It is Jesus who brings us to God. He stands in the gap. He is the mediator between God and man. This is what 1 Peter 3, 18 says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, taking care of our legal problem. But not only that, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you see that? 
Do you see that in the text? Do you see, brothers and sisters, Jesus brings us back into right relationship with God. No more enmity exists between us. There is no more separation between us. God is our Father. When you, when you move past God as judge and include within your understanding him as, as Father, you know what begins to happen? These commands, these words from God become sweet rather than bitter. You, you realize that, that they are God's loving care for you rather than thinking that he, they are his restrictions upon you. Oh, that knowledge is necessary before continuing to, to dig into the content of these words that we find in Exodus 20. It's important that you know that they come from a good father who delights to give his children good, good gifts. Commandments, as we learned, were given to Moses on two tablets of stone. Notably, they've been come to be to, to be known as the first table of the law and the second table of the law. And this, this week, we, we will look at the first table. And, and Lord willing, next week, we will look at the second table of the law. The first table of the law consists of commandments one through four. Second table, five through 10. These commands, one through four, are concerned with how we relate to God. Jesus summarizes these commandments, summarizes the commandments as love for God and neighbor. And while all the commands speak or are relevant to those imperatives, those two imperatives, the first four have often been seen as a prescription for how you and I, for how Christians, for how God's people are to love God. After hearing that, here is the mind-blowing truth of it all. This is what I, I, I struggle to wrap, wrap my mind around all the time. The mind-blowing reality is that you and I have the ability to relate to God. The God of the universe, the God of who created all things, is a God who is knowable. He is a relational God. The great I am is, is not some impersonal, distant deity doling out commands for his subjects to follow. But Yahweh is knowable. You do recognize this is what makes the God that we serve unique. To a pagan world, this is unimaginable that, that humans could actually relate to the gods. They were never personal. They were always unknowable. But for the Christian, for, 
for God, for Yahweh. He is relatable. This was the revelation that he was bringing to his people. God reveals that he is a God who enters into relationship with his people. And this relationship that he has with his people, it is codified in loving kindness. His hesed, his, his, his loving faithfulness to his people. God love, God's love for his people was demonstrating, demonstrated in him hearing the cries of them in Egypt. He heard the cries of his people in Egypt and acted on their behalf, and he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Hosea 11.1 says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Here was, here was God's, it was God's loving kindness that caused him to move. This is the affection with which he, he loved and graciously loved his people. They were his God, and he was theirs. God loved Israel, and he demonstrated that love towards them by rescuing them by a, with his mighty hand in Egypt. And his only request... God's only request of his people, quite naturally, I might add, was to have their love and devotion in return. That's all God asked. I rescued you. I delivered you from Egypt. All I ask of you is that you would love me in return, that I would have your devotion in return. Not because he needed their love but so that they might live life to the full. That they might operate in the way in which they were created to operate, to live. They were created to worship. You do realize that loving God is about worshiping God. You worship what you love and you love what you worship. Worship and love are always, they're always linked together. Jesus links the two in Matthew 6, 24. No one, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the, the one and, and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus links these two ideas, love and worship together. And so when God calls us to worship him, he prescribes, in essence, how we are to love him. We can't just love him any old way. As was mentioned last week, God prescribes how he is to be worshipped. This is what we, we learn. This is what you and I learn in the first table of the law, in the first four commandments of the law we learn how we are to love God. And you know how we are to love God? We are to love God exclusively. 
We are to love God exclusively. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. You know, during the plagues in Egypt, Yahweh, Yahweh had demonstrated to Israel that Egypt's, the, the, the Egyptian gods, they stood no chance against Yahweh. It was there that they saw God's power fully on display as he put to shame the false gods of the Egyptians. You know, in the wilderness, they saw his provision and he turned the, 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 the bitter waters of, of Mara sweet. And day after day in the wilderness, he provided manna for them and quail. They saw God's power and they, they saw his provision. Israel did not have to blindly believe that, that God alone was the true God of Israel, uh, true God of the universe. They had experienced his, his, his power. They experienced his majesty firsthand. God gave them the signs and wonders to help them believe. God loved Israel. He loved them, and he rescued them from bondage. His power and his provision were executed on their behalf. All God required of Israel was their exclusive love. You shall have no other gods before me. God let Israel know that their love and affections were to be directed toward him and him alone. The Egyptians may have had multiple gods, but Israel had only one. And in reality, as it was, here was the reality, it was and it still is, there is only one true God. As and sisters, I am not sure if there is a more foundational truth for God's people to know. It is one of my favorite catechism questions to hear the children answer. Question, are there more gods than one? Answer, no, there is only one true God. Oh, that is a wonderful and foundational truth for God's people to know. Christians in a world full of, of false gods, this is a necessary foundational truth. Israel was rescued out of a culture that was full of gods. The Egyptians made gods out of everything. We too find ourselves navigating a culture full of gods. Gods that vie for our love and, and vie for our attention. Sex and, and money and fame and, and success and, and jobs and, and family and, and knowledge and, and power and, and sports. 
These are the false gods that pull and tug at our heartstrings. I know, I know we say we love God. But if we were honest, we are guilty of not, lo- of loving, of not loving him exclusively. We don't love him exclusively as he asks. We, shall, we should have no other gods before him. What did Jesus say to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, 3 through 4? I know you are enduring patiently, commending them, bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary, but I have this, this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Ephesus had been stepping out on God. The truth is, all of us are in, that, in danger of doing that. Sin easily entraps us. It stands on the the street corner and and beckons us to follow, and too often we do. And here's the scary part. Some of the things that draw our hearts away from God, that, that pull at our heartstrings, are good things, like family and and jobs and, and children, sports. Good things, arts, we, we call these things good because we get enjoyment from it. But when those things begin to pull at our hearts and begin to, to consume and envelop our emotions and our time and our money, you know what has happened? We've stepped out on God. We've broken the first commandment. God is saying, don't neglect your first love. Your affections and devotions need to be wrapped up in him. You know, the one who sent his affections, who set his affections upon you, not because of of anything you've done, or, or because you were the best looking on the block. No, he loved you because he chose you, baggage and all. Now, in light of that, God says, love me exclusively. God, if we're going to, that tells us in these first four commands how we are to love. We are to love him exclusively. But we're also to love God rightly. We're to love God rightly. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. I've said this before many times. I'm sure it's getting old, but we need to get it in our minds. You and I were created to worship. We were created with a desire for and a yearning for awe, to be awestruck, to find our value in in something, to look outside of ourselves and to, to worship it. 
There is not a person born that doesn't worship. The issue is worshiping rightly. As has been noted, Egypt was full of worshipers. And in order to aid them in their worship of the gods, of their their false gods, they created idols, images to depict or to remind them of the gods they were worshiping. So you can imagine, in a polytheistic culture, there were idols everywhere. Idols to frogs, idols to the sun. They made an, a, a god out of the Nile. They worshiped these things. And so Israel, who grew up in this culture, who was saturated in this culture, would have been familiar with this method and this practice for worship. This is the culture they were born into. This is where they lived. And because of that, they would have been tempted. And as we will see later in their travails and their travels through the wilderness, their temptation in this area would give way to sin. But they would have been tempted to fashion images, idols, and liken them to God. The second commandment forbids this practice and denounces idol worship. God is clear. If you are going to love him rightly, you must know that he is not a God created by human hands. Paul says exactly this when he was talking to the philosophers and the worshipers in Athens at Mars Hill. When he says in Acts 17, 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the arts and imagination of man. Here's the deal, brothers and sisters. God cannot be imaged. Nothing you and I create could at all represent the Almighty. And to try is foolishness at best. In fact, God mocks those who form and fashion idols. In Isaiah 40, he mocks them outrightly. Isaiah 40, 18 through 20, he says, to whom then will you liken God? After declaring his, his majesty, his sovereignty, who, whom then will you liken God to? Or what likeness compare him with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He is who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not even move. <laughs> they go through all this trouble, giving their money working, forming, and fashioning it to worship something that will not even move. 
God mocks idol worship. We are not to image God. But you do realize when we begin to make images or form images in the likeness of God, then those things then start becoming gods to us. And God's warning to his people is that he is jealous. He is a jealous God, and he will not withhold punishment. Severe. In fact, he says in Deuteronomy 27, 15, cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. An abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Here's the deal, brothers and sisters. You and I, we do not need images or idols to aid us in our worship of God. We, we are a people who worship God in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said to the woman at the well. You don't need to paint a picture or carve a piece of wood to prove that we love God. You don't need to hang a cross around your neck to prove that you love God. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 tells us, though you have not seen him, guess what? You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You and I don't need to image him, to love him. In fact, We love him rightly when we look to the one who, when asked to see the Father, said, if you have seen seen me, then what have you seen? Then you have seen the Father. You, You want to know what the Father looks like? You want to imagine what the Father looks like? Look to Jesus. That is how You love God rightly. You look to Jesus. We're to love God exclusively, love God rightly. We're also to love God reverently, reverently. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Names given to people during the time of Moses had meaning. Your name communicated something of who you were. Now, we don't do that these days. It's very rare. Uh, My name, Philip, means lover of horses, and I don't love horses. (laughs) We don't do this today. Your name spoke perhaps to the situation by which or into which you were born. 
You remember Moses. When Moses was named, we are told that he was called so because Moses means I drew him out of water. And we know that he was indeed drawn out of water as a baby by Pharaoh's daughter. And when she did that, she named him Moses because I, it means I drew him out of water. Jacob, which means deceiver or he who cheats, was called so because as he was leaving the womb, his brother Esau was being brought out of the womb first. Jacob was grasping the heel of his brother, a term known in that culture as a deceiver or one who cheats. We could do this all day with names in the the Bible. But it was clear names had a meaning tied to your character. When Moses initially meets with God on Mount Sinai and was given the task to rescue God's people, Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? What, what, whose name should I tell them? God responded by saying, I am who I am. He was saying that his name spoke of his majesty, of his, of his sovereignty, of his, his power, of his uh, authority. This is the name of God, Yahweh. So in the third commandment, what God was desiring for Israel to do was to treat his name with care and with, with honor. Not to use it flippantly or in a callous or a crude manner. You might ask, well, well, what is the big deal? Why would God be so concerned about how his people used his name? Because, brothers and sisters, God's people carried his name before the other nations. Israel was God's people, and he was their God. They represented his name upon the earth. And how they lived and how they used his name was going to reflect upon him. All the dads in the room are saying, yep. (laughs) God's name carried weight. It was loaded with authority. So Israel was to honor it with their lips and their life. Leviticus 19 and 12 gives us more insight into this command. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Here's what God is saying. Don't Take his name and live, act, and speak counter to his person and nature. Don't make empty promises. Don't make promises with with no intention of keeping them. Don't use God's name to further your own agenda. 
Michael Horton says this in reference to this command. One of the ways in which we profane God's name is to use God, his name, authority, or direction as a blank check for your own decisions and activities. You know what this looks like? You have an idea, a direction, a place where you want to go, something that you want to do, marry somebody that God doesn't say you should marry, do something that God doesn't say you should do, and you know what you do? You say, well, God told me I should do this. God told me I should do that. When you do that, brothers and sisters, you are are breaking the third command. You are taking the Lord's name in vain. The name of God is precious. We ought to be careful, as Pastor Tony said last week. We ought to love God reverently. And you know what? This command is is important. It is so important for us to remember in an increasingly informal culture. That's what our culture is. It's, it's becoming increasingly informal. Reverence and honor seem to have gone by the wayside. I know we can make an idol of it. <laughs> Some people have done. Reverence and honor has gone by the wayside. As Christians, we must realize that we love God by reverencing his name, by honoring him. We don't treat his name flippantly or use it as though it is meaningless. Treating it like it is just another name. That goes for our lives as well. If we call ourselves Christian, that means that we are calling ourselves the name of Christ. We are Christ-like. That means that our actions should follow suit. Our lives should honor the name in which we carry. You're Christian. You're called Christian. We ought to live like it. If anyone... If anyone should reverence the the name of God, it ought to be and should be Christians. For we know, for we just don't just know in our minds mentally, but we have experienced that there is power in the name of Jesus. For, For at his name, knees bow. For at the name of Jesus, the lame walk, uh, and and blind men see, and, and, and the deaf hear. Sinners are set free. Loving God reverently means using his name to bring him glory, to bring glory to his name. Or you know what else it does? You know how else we use it rightly? When we bring his name to those who need salvation. For there is salvation in his name. And if you are not using it in any of those ways, either to bring glory to God or bring salvation to people, then you are not loving God reverently. You are taking his name in vain. Oh, we ought to love God 
reverently, exclusively, and rightly. And lastly, we are to love God fully. That's what the fourth commandment says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, each of these commandments, we could have spent a Sunday going through. <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing an overview. You're like, it's already been 50 minutes, 50 minutes Philip. What's going on? All right. We could spend hours digging into each of these commands. And so this one could spend, we could spend multiple and multiple days digging into this fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Israel had already begun to put this command into practice. This command is in keeping with the instructions given for the gathering of the manna, right? You do remember that on the sixth day of the week, the children of Israel in the wilderness were to gather double portion because when they woke up on, on the seventh day, there would be no manna. They were to use the manna that they gathered on the sixth day. For on the seventh day, God wanted them to rest from their labors. But really, the roots of this command go back even further than the instructions on the manna. For this command is grounded in creation. Look at verse 11 of our text, Exodus 20. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God was instituting a day of rest, a, a day of reflection and remembrance so that his people could love him fully and realize how fully loved by God they were. Sabbath, according to the words of God, was instituted as a holy day, set apart from all other days, a day that was to be dedicated to God. And, and, and while all of life is supposed to be lived in worship and devotion to God, the Sabbath was a special day, free from labor and other distractions so that God's people could worship him fully. Leviticus 19 and 30, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So on the Sabbath, the Sabbath was meant to, to express your love and devotion to God fully, without distraction, to put down the, the labors of your hands and to give your whole heart your whole life, your time to the devotion of God. The Sabbath gives God's people rest to love him fully. But it also gives his people time 
to remember how fully loved they are. The rest, the rest that we enjoy on the Sabbath is God's love to us. And it's meant to communicate several things to to God's people. But this morning, I just want to highlight two. The Sabbath rest communicates God's care for you. His care. Whether you think so or not, you and I need rest. This is how God has designed his creation to function. There are to be six days of work and a day of rest. God created, he said, in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Did he rest because he needed to rest? No, brothers and sisters, he didn't need to rest. He was setting forth an example for his creation to live out. And oh, how often we violate this command. You know, this is one of the commands that is often seen as restrictive. Rest? I don't need rest. <laughs> I don't need to take a nap. I don't need to, I don't need to stop working. Oh, I'll just, I'll just get this one email in. I'll just, I'll just do this one thing. Rest. Brothers and sisters, rest is a good thing. It is a gift from a good father. I, try to tell, I remember trying to convince my children when they needed to take a nap. I remember trying to convince them all the time. You know, rest is a gift from God. That is a good thing. When you get my age, you're going to long for that nap. <laughs> oh, it's a good thing. We find that out in Psalm 127 too. It is in vain. Listen to this. It is in vain. You rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. When you don't rest, it's showing that you're toiling, that you're anxious. You're doing, you're in many respects, working in vain, the scripture says. But God, for he gives his beloved sleep. It's a gift Brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm, I'm reminding myself of this. We live in a culture that says, go, 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 go. Oh, God in his grace, in his gift to us, gives us rest. Sabbath rest communicates God's care. But the Sabbath rest also communicates God's covenant. His covenant. And this is where we really see how fully loved by God we are. Exodus 20 and 12. Excuse me, Ezekiel 20, 12. He says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. The Sabbath rest points to the rest we have in Jesus both now and in eternity. The Sabbath reminds us that that you and I do not save ourselves. We don't work ourselves into heaven. 
It is only when we rest in Jesus do we realize that we are fully loved by God. God has made us his own. He saved us. And he is working his son in us. He saved us. He sanctifies us by his hand. This is the rest that we we now have in Jesus. That's what this rest points to. It also points to the eternal rest that we long for. It's the rest that awaits us. The writer of Hebrew tells us of this rest in Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. So then there reminds a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Brothers and sisters, we are going to rest for eternity in Jesus. Sabbath points to that very reality. We get a glimpse of it now, but we will recognize it fully in eternity when we rest in Jesus forever. The Sabbath, brothers and sisters, allows us to worship God fully and express his love fully. This is This is what we learn in the first table of the law. We learn how we are to love God. We are to love God exclusively. We are to love God rightly. We are to love God reverently. And we are are to love God fully. But as we do that, we must always keep in mind that we love God because he first loved God us. You cannot forget that. It's not the other way around. God doesn't love us because we first loved him. We love him because he first loved us. You and I don't follow these commands in order for God to love us, but because God has loved us. And he loved us in Christ. Who did what? Who fulfilled the law perfectly. Who loved God perfectly. So now, you and I are free to love him exclusively, rightly, reverently, and fully. We are called to love God, our good Father. Let's pray.